Well, good evening, Summit Church. Good to see all of you here tonight. My name is Andy, uh, and as Brian said, tonight we're actually completing this series on the resurrection that we started about a month ago. And uh, for the last several weeks, we've been talking about how this changes everything, this meaning the resurrection of Jesus, the belief that Jesus didn't just die, but he got up again, and, uh, and that changed every single thing about our lives. That changes our past, our presence, our future, and even tonight we're going to see how that is supposed to change our eternities. And so we've been looking at this for the last several weeks, seeing the power, uh, how, the power of the resurrection, that truth is meant to impact every area of our lives. Now I have to I have to make a confession, I feel like, up front. This week, as I've been preparing to teach on the subject of eternity, all week, I feel like at least a dozen times as I've been sitting there at my desk with a stack of books in front of me, my computer in front of me, thinking to myself, at least a dozen times I feel like I've thought to myself, you know what, in a few days, Andy, you're going to get up on stage and talk for about 35 minutes in front of all of these people about a subject that for many of us here tonight probably seems like the most irrelevant subject that we could talk about in our lives today. I, I, I felt this pressure all week as we were thinking about this. This is probably a topic for most of you. When we get to that point on the timeline from our past, present, future into our eternity, this probably seems like that point that has the least amount of bearing in your life right now because it's a concept when we talk about eternity. It's a concept that seems so foreign, seems so distant, it seems so trivial there really kind of seems like there's probably no reason to even talk about it. There's no value in talking about it right now in our lives. In fact, this week, I actually I, I stumbled across a survey. Uh, several thousand Americans were polled, and the results showed that nearly half, nearly half of all Americans never think about what happens to them after they die. And I understand that. It's probably a lot of us here tonight. Uh, almost half of Americans never think about what happens to them after they die. And, and maybe you're one of those types of people, and maybe it's you know, a number of different reasons. Perhaps it's because you're the type of person who thinks once the lights are out, they have gone out. Maybe you're the type of person who thinks, you know what, the re- realistically, there's probably no way that we can actually know what happens after we die. So there's no real value in thinking about it right now. Whatever that reason is, All week, I felt the pressure as I was sitting at my desk to think about, how do I, for the next 35 minutes, talk about this concept, when already, right out of the gate, half the people here, they don't think it's relevant to their lives, or there's any way for us to actually know about it. Now, on top of that, as I was considering this, I began to also think about something else. While half of us never really think about what happens to us after we die, the other half of us who do tend to think about that, myself included, uh, I can say from personal experience, while I do, uh, you know, I've thought about eternity, I do continue to think about eternity, I even have specific beliefs about eternity, even despite all of those things, I still find it amazingly difficult to wrap my mind about what that's going to look like, what that's going to be like, what I need to do to prepare for that, because it seems like such a foreign concept. You know, for me personally, growing up, and I, I realize this is probably the product of watching way too many cartoons growing up, but for me, I realized, I, I kind of just dreamed that when that day comes for me to step into eternity, when that day comes that I have breathed my last here on earth, as I ascend the stairwell into the clouds with Led Zeppelin playing in the background, I kind of just assumed that I would in some way, somehow magically morph into this cute little cherub sporting a white diaper, floating on the clouds, like beginning harp lessons so I can fit in with the other angels around me. And that's what I kind of tended to think, this is what heaven is going to like, be like. And for the most part, for most of my childhood, into my adult life, I kind of thought, 
you know what? Heaven seems, it just seems a little boring. It seems kind of boring. Maybe you've even thought this at some point in your life. This seems like a, this seems like a lame party that I wish I hadn't been invited to. And if you're anything like me, there's, there's even times in your life where you meet certain people, you encounter certain people who are really confident that they're going to heaven. And I probably shouldn't say this since I'm a pastor, but you meet those people and you think, gosh, I don't really know if I want to spend eternity with that guy. That's a really long time to be with that person. Because eternity is so hard to grasp and wrap our minds around. Now, here's the really fascinating thing about that. The fascinating thing about that is despite the fact of how difficult it is for us to imagine eternity, despite the fact that we're a people who tend not just to regularly think about eternity, we're, we're a generation that's probably not even really enticed by the concept of spending eternity somewhere. We find that amazingly difficult to even think about any of us spending eternity in a certain place forever, despite all those things, all of those things working against us as we try to fathom what happens to us after we die. The Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't dismiss those difficulties. The Bible doesn't dismiss those hesitancies that you may have. In fact, it embraces them. It recognizes them. And it says, although you find it incredibly difficult to wrap your mind around eternity, although you might find it incredibly difficult to believe, the Bible says that God has put eternity in your heart. He has put eternity in your heart. In some way, somehow, he has wired you to long for eternity. He has wired you to crave the day that you step into eternity. Whether you realize that or not, whether you expressly or intentionally think about that often, he has wired you to long for the day that you step into eternity. And our hearts crave that. Our hearts crave the day that we will be able to allow our joy, our pleasure, our lives, our love, everything that we adore to endure forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and never cease. Now, if that's true, if that's true, here's what I've come to realize. If indeed we do have a certain longing in our hearts for eternity. If indeed we do crave the day that we step in, into eternity. Here's what I've come to realize. That if God has actually put eternity in our hearts, then what you believe about eternity influences what you believe about everything else. What you believe about eternity influences what you believe about everything else. Your life today what you live for tomorrow, when you go to work, when you come back home, all of those things, all of those, those things are affected by what you believe about eternity because what you believe about eternity affects and influences what you believe about everything else. And so tonight, as we turn our attention to Romans chapter 8, what we're going to see is Paul, the writer of this letter, he's going to bring us tremendously good news Paul is going to bring us tremendously good news because he's going to say that at the resurrection, Jesus did not just die, but he got up again. And because of that resurrection, we can have a hope for eternity. But not only a hope for eternity, a hope that breaks into our lives today. A hope that changes us. A hope that encourages us. A hope that we can live by each day. And so as we look at this passage tonight, what we're going to see, uh, Paul is going to actually help us better understand the longing that we have for eternity. He's going to help us better understand the longing that we have et for eternity uh, by teaching us about three specific things. First, he's going to teach us about our bondage. Then he's going to teach us about our destiny and then our hope. Those are the three things we're going to cover tonight, our bondage, our destiny, and our hope. So we're going to start in verse 18. Why don't you turn back in your Bibles to verse 18 with me? Uh, just as a preface to the book of Romans, this is actually a letter. 
This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, to all of the Christians in Rome. And uh, at this time, Rome was one of the most influential cities in the entire known world at that time. In fact, it was more than just a city. It was the Roman Empire. What started as a small town had expanded into multiple continents where it's just influence and its power and magnificence had continued to grow and grow and grow. Uh, By the time that Paul was writing this, this city had become so popular that it was actually dubbed the Eternal City. It was known as the Eternal City, which I think is a little bit ironic because Paul, in writing to the church there, is going to teach them and instruct them how to properly understand eternity. So this is what he says, starting in verse 18. Read along with me. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. All he's saying right there to the Christians, to those people in the church that are following Jesus, he's saying right now, if you're suffering, if you're going through some trials, if you're going through some hard stuff, take heart because what you're experiencing right now, it doesn't even compare to what you're going to receive one day. It doesn't even compare. For, verse 19, look at verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What Paul is saying here is that all of creation is in bondage. All of creation. All of creation is in bondage, from the mountains to the trees, the birds, and the bees, all of creation is in bondage. Now, I realize that probably sounds a little bit strange, uh, unless unless you realize and and understand the entire story of the Bible, because what Paul is doing at this point is he's referencing the very first chapters of the Bible, going all the way back to Genesis. What happens there in Genesis, in the very first chapters of the Bible, what we see is Adam and Eve walking in the Garden of Eden, enjoying their relationship with each other, enjoying their relationship with God, until until one day, Adam and Eve Eve decide, rather than to obey God, they decide to play God. And in rejecting him, they are cast out of the garden, they are cast out of his presence, they are separated from God, and they are placed in bondage. They are placed in bondage. And what happens to Adam is the same thing that happens to all of humanity we are thrust into this bondage of all sorts. So right there from the beginning, if you know the story of what happens there in Genesis, we see all kinds of bondage happening right there in the very beginning. There's obviously the spiritual bondage. They've been separated from God. Okay, they're cast out of his presence. But there's also physical bondage. Work becomes hard and toilsome. Childbirth becomes painful. There's psychological bondage. There's all of a sudden this deceit going on between Adam and Eve. There's blame shifting that's occurring. Then there's social bondage. There's conflict between families. Death will occur soon after. All types of problems between the family members. All types of bondage is occurring right here. And we're seeing that what happens is that creation, the natural world around us, it is riding on the coattails of Adam. So that as man fell, all of creation fell behind it. And it was put into the same type of bondage that Adam and Eve experienced. It was being restrained. It was being held back like a slave in captivity. It was not free to do exactly what God created it to be and to do. What happened to us and what happened to the created world around us is that we were being restrained. We were not free to do exactly what God created us to be and to do. You know what, I feel like I saw a, um, I actually saw a great illustration of this uh, just this past week. Many of you know, you know I'm not really a huge sports guy. 
I've admitted that before. You know that about me. I'm not really a huge sports guy, but uh, I feel like every other guy on our staff is. So in order to keep in good grace with them, uh, last week, I'm not even sure why I did this, but I actually watched an ESPN documentary. Uh, and it was on an athlete. You probably know the athlete. Even if you're not really into sports, you remember him from your childhood. Because, because it was a, a documentary on Bo Jackson. You guys remember Bo Jackson? Uh, phenomenal athlete. Even if you don't remember watching him on TV, you probably remember his TV ads. Bo Bo knows. Yeah, okay, absolutely. So you guys know, you're familiar with Bo, one of the greatest athletes ever. Incredible. I mean, phenomenal uh, sportsman. And you would just watch him on TV and be mesmerized. In fact, you can see uh, uh, clips on, on the internet of other athletes on the opposing team watching Bo Jackson play and just stop and being mesmerized by him, watching him like do his thing. He was that good. And uh, as Bo, as his popularity grew throughout the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, um, he just continued to impress and impress and impress until one day. It was January 13th. It was 1991. It was an NFL playoff game. Bo is handed the ball. He starts running down the sidelines. And all of a sudden, he's tackled. It's not a spectacular tackle. It's nothing uh, out of the ordinary. He's just tackled from behind. He goes down. He's laying on the ground for a minute. He feels his hip. He gets up. He feels his hip again. He falls down. And in an instant, his athletic career was cut short. He would never score another touchdown. He would never steal another base. His athletic career was cut amazingly short at 29 years old, one of the most phenomenal athletes of all time. And and the sadness, the disbelief that spread throughout the nation, really, throughout the, the sports world, throughout everyone, it was just amazing as people tried to process what had happened. And inherently in all of us, there is this, there's this some type of sadness when we look at someone like that who was created to do such great things but is inhibited, is restrained from accomplishing what he was created to do. In fact, that was the actual language that was being used throughout the entire documentary by the narrators. They just kept saying over and over, Bo was not able to fulfill what he was created to do. Bo was not able to fulfill what he was created to be. Nowadays, almost any article you read on Bo Jackson, almost every article ends the same exact way. It ends with a journalist in the final paragraphs always asking the same questions, wondering what could have been, what could have been, what could have been, what could have been, what could have been. The reality is that's that's probably a question that we've asked ourselves many times throughout our lives. The same type of disappointment and sadness that we feel when we see a great athlete like that, his career cut short, that's the same type of sadness that many of you have felt in your own lives. Because there are times in our lives when we come face to face with how things are and how things should be. And when you come to face to face with things with how they are and how they should be, you can't help but to begin to long for and crave eternity. How many of you let me just ask, how many of you come from the type of family that, like on Thanksgiving or Christmas, you guys come together, everyone comes in from out of town, all together, one house under one roof, and you know, there's something about it, you just know, this is like a ticking time bomb that at any point, it could just explode. You know, it could just explode at any moment, and all it takes, all it takes is one mother-in-law or one older brother, a, uh, a critical comment or a snide remark about your job situation, about your new boyfriend, about the way you wash dishes in this house, and all of a sudden the whole thing comes down, doesn't it? It's just crazy. It just explodes right in front of your face. And you leave that weekend, you walk, you walk out the door, you get in your car and drive away, and you just long for the day when you can have a family that is normal and just actually gets along with one another. 
Maybe your family's great. Maybe your family is fine. But maybe you know that within yourself, there is something that it doesn't matter how much you try to shake, whether it's a behavior, whether it's an attitude, whether it's a self-destructive behavior, an addiction. Maybe it's just even your lifestyle. As you move from city to city to city, as you move from boyfriend to boyfriend to boyfriend, as you move from a circle of friends to new circle of friends, hoping that, that your destructive behavior, behavior or your habit or your lifestyle will just change with the change of scenery, but for some reason it doesn't. It follows you. Whatever you try to do to just get rid of that lifestyle doesn't seem to work, and you long for the day that your life just seems normal for more than five minutes. What Paul is saying in this passage He's saying that when, when, when the athlete's career is cut drastically short, when your dysfunctional family cannot get along, when you see your lifestyle continuing to produce negative and negative results in and out, in and out, in and out of unhealthy relationships, this is not just, this is not just a reflection of the bondage that you face in the human condition. This is a reflection of the bondage of cosmic proportions. Our entire world, all of creation, is experiencing this same bondage. And every episode in your life is like a small tile. It's like a small tile building on top of one another, making an entire mosaic of cosmic proportions, showing how our entire world, all of creation, is in bondage. It's being restrained, and it's not being able to experience what it was created to experience. So what do we do? What do we do in a moment like that? What do we do uh, to break the cycle? What do we do to find that normalcy? What do we genuinely do to be able to Free ourselves from the bondage Paul says we are in. Well, I think there are probably three options here. This is my understanding, at least. I think there are probably three options for us to really genuinely experience freedom from bondage. Uh, We can look inward, we can look outward, or we can look upward. We can look inward, we can look outward, or we can look upward. Most of us, we tend to first look inward. Okay, I can just muster up enough strength and energy and talent and expertise in my own life to be able to get through whatever I'm trying to get through to overcome this mess. I'm going to look inside of myself. I'm going to try hard enough. I'm going to work hard enough. I'm going to fight hard enough. I'm just going to neglect everything else because within me is the power to be able to handle this. I'm just going to ignore the present condition. I'm just going to ignore what my heart tells me. I'm going to ignore those longings. And I'm going to look within myself. If anything's going to change, I have the power to be able to do that. And many of you know, many of you could come up here right now and tell that story of of trying to look inward. That is like an uphill battle that never ends. That is like an uphill battle. Never ends. So then after looking inward, a lot of us tend to then change and look outward. We look to other people, other substances, other uh, circumstances, other, all kinds of other things to satisfy the cravings of our hearts. We look to anything outside of us to be able to satisfy the cravings of our hearts. If I can just get her to ask me out, if I can just get him to sleep with me, if I can just you know, work hard enough here, if I can ignore the longings of my heart by drinking more, lifting more, making more, having more, any of those things can be ignored then because I can block out the longings of my heart by the things or the people around me. Paul says then, if looking inward is like an uphill battle, looking outward to other people to satisfy the cravings of our heart, that is like a downward spiral that ends disastrously, usually taking a lot of other people with you. So we can look inward, we can look outward to other people. But let's, I mean, let's just be honest. When we think about that, like, that never works. It never ultimately satisfies the longings and the cravings of our hearts. Because all of those things, myself, 
the other people around me, the other substances around me, all of those things are under the same, the very same bondage that I am. So if I look inward, if I look outward, those things are never going to work. The only reason, the only thing we can actually look at with success is looking upward to Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one who has the power to be able to overcome the bondage that we all experience. He is the only one who always has been and always will be and has never been subjected to the same kind of bondage that we are in. In fact, he has conquered that bondage by dying on the cross and resurrecting from the grave. So why would we not look to him as the only person who can defeat that? The Bible says when we look upward to Jesus, he literally comes down and begins unlocking the chains of bondage around us. The very first step is believing in him, trusting in him, and he's literally unlocking those chains around us so that we can experience freedom. Now, Paul then moves from talking about that bondage to moving to our destiny. And what he's going to do here in this next portion, what he's going to do is actually help us out. He's going to remove a little bit of, of, of the mystery about what heaven is going to be like. And, uh, and he does that starting uh, in verse 22. So look at verse 22 with me as we continue. It says in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, here's what Paul is saying. We all, and creation together alongside of us, we are groaning like a mother in labor as we eagerly await heaven. Now, let me say this up front. Um, it is not only, it's not only difficult, but it is dangerous for a man to come up here and try to adequately, adequately explain the pain of childbirth. Okay, I realize that up front. Uh, I'm not going to try to pretend like I know exactly what that feels like. Uh, I've been there. I've witnessed it. I've seen it. Uh, I've been the guy whose hand's been squeezed as it's happening. But I'm not, in no way, what I say now, I say very cautiously as I try to explain what Paul is saying about childbirth. Because what he's saying, what he's trying to communicate to us is that uh, in childbirth, in childbirth, as real as that pain is, as real as that suffering is, for the mother in labor, there is actually a hope. There is a hope that sustains them through the suffering because they know that on the other end, there is something to look forward to. It is not gratuitous pain. It is not meaningless pain, but there is a purpose in that pain. There is a prize at the end. It is a baby who is, who is loving, who you can cuddle and kiss. And I think I hear mine crying upstairs right now, actually. But that's the, that's the reality of what he's saying in that suffering. Saying in that suffering, we have hope because we know on the other end of that suffering, there is a prize, something that we can love and adore. And that's what it's like for us as we long for a day when we have eternity before us. We, alongside creation, are longing for that day. We groan in anticipation. Look in verse 23 again. This is what Paul's going to tell us. Here, this is actually the first picture we have of what eternity is going to be like, what heaven's going to be like for us as we get there. In verse 23, it says, um, We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for, first of all, first thing, the adoption of sons, and secondly, the redemption of our bodies. The adoption of sons and the redemption of our bodies. These are the two things Paul is first saying. Uh, this is what we're going to experience when we get to heaven. The first, the first one, adoption. He's saying our adoption will be made complete when we step into eternity. Now, um, 
when you meet Jesus on earth, in, in this world, when you come to have faith in Christ and decide to follow Jesus, what he's saying is you are now brought into a new family. You have been adopted into a new family. You have a new heavenly father who loves you, and now you have brothers and sisters around you who care for you and who do life together with you. In fact, we say this every single time we baptize someone here at the Summit Church. We bring up the horse trough, and we tell them, you are now in a new family. We're going to be doing this next week, a new sister in the family, and we're able to celebrate that. We're able to tell them, you have a new dad. I am your brother. These are your brothers and sisters out here. So love your brothers as your brothers, love your sisters as your sisters, because you've been adopted into a new family. And, and, and that day, when we step into the eternity, when we go to heaven, we're able to come before our church. We're able to come before the people around us, and we're able to look and say, Jesus is my dad, I've met him for, for eternity now. These are my brothers and sisters that I have been reunited with. I am now reunited with these people. And like children... We're able to revel in the unconditional love of our Father. That is what heaven is like. We are like children able to revel in the love of our Father. The second thing that happens is the redemption of our bodies. Now, this I think is particularly interesting because I'm, you know, I think right here there's the most amount of mystery on what does this look like for us when we get to heaven, but Jesus is actually able to show us a picture after he resurrects. He says our bodies are going to be redeemed. Now, how many of you feel like there are certain days when you think, man, I could really use some redemption in my body? I feel like that pretty often. Even, you know, I realize most of us here, we're pretty young, we're pretty fit, but there are still days that we wake up and we, we realize we're not as young as we used to be, right? I wake up, and I think there are times where I'm like, I get out of bed, and all of a sudden I realize, man, this really hurts, or this really hurts, or this is aching, or this is cracking, and I'm not really even sure why. All I did was sleep. I should feel better, but I feel worse right now. And then I'm able to like stumble into my bathroom, and I turn on the light, kind of blinded by the light. I look at the mirror and think, yikes, this really needs redemption. This is like demonic right now. Jesus needs to come back soon. What Paul is saying is that our bodies are being restrained. Our bodies are in bondage to decay. So what do we do? What do we do about that? We try to fight the bondage. We try to fight the decay, don't we? We go to the gym. I go to the gym, and I go there. I try to fight the decay by doing deadlifts. And I do deadlifts as many as I can until the next morning I can't even get out of bed because my lower back hurts so much. But it's all because I'm trying to fight it, right? And so a few days later, I go back to the gym because I'm trying, you know, I, I subject myself this again, and I go back in there, and, and when I'm there, I do something like, I don't know, heavy front squats, and in doing that, I, it's so painful, that the next few days, I'm walking like a bow-legged cowboy because my quads hurt so bad. And people ask me, my friends are asking me, why do you even do that? Why do you even, like, subject yourself to this? It's functional fitness. It feels so good. You should try it. Come with me. And everyone's like, no way. Why would I ever subject myself to that? Our bodies are in bondage to decay, and we do everything we can to fight that. Paul's saying, when we get to heaven, there will be no need for CrossFit. There will be no need for paleo diets. I'll be able to eat as much ice cream as I want at Little Man and never think twice about it, right? There's not going to be any need for aspirin or crutches or medicine. We're not going to be worrying about our cholesterol or blood pressure or infertility or anything like that because our bodies will be redeemed. Our bodies will be redeemed. And like children, we are going to be able to run into play and experiencing everything that God created us to experience, will be free to enjoy, unrestrained, forever. That is the picture of heaven that Paul offers us. 
our bodies will be redeemed. Our bodies will be free to experience joy like they were created to experience. Now, here's the thing. Anytime we talk about heaven, we've got to talk about hell. I realize it's not popular. I realize that a lot of you have probably had really bad experiences with preachers yelling about it. Uh, that's not us, but here's the thing. Jesus talked about it more than anybody else in the Bible. Because Jesus talked about it, and because we're all about Jesus here, we talk about it as well. And so, here's the thing. Let me just say up front, this, isn't, this is in no way an exhaustive explanation about hell. But when it comes to hell, there are a few things you need to know that we believe as a church, and the Bible says about it. We believe that hell is very real. We believe that it is eternal. And we believe that if you want to know what hell is like, it's the very opposite of what everything Paul says about heaven. This is the very opposite of everything Paul says about heaven. Instead of being adopted into a new family with a heavenly father that loves you and brothers and sisters that care for you and want to do life with you, it's like eternal abandonment. It's like being like left like an orphan to your own devices without a family. Instead of the redemption of our bodies, it is being placed into eternal torment. We're continually tormented by our bodies forever and ever and ever. Hell, in the end, is really just, it's just really a reflection of what we most want and desire in this world now. If we desire to have uh, our God as our Savior and our Master, that's what we are able to enjoy in heaven forever. If we desire to be our own saviors and masters, well, that's what God gives us. As we walk down a path away from God, playing God, trying to worship ourselves, running from God, Hell is just an internal destiny of those things, a freely chosen path where we decide to walk away from the goodness and the greatness and the love and the mercy and the joy and the forgiveness of God forever and ever. Now, here's the good news and the bad news. If the resurrection is true, if, if what Jesus really, if he really got up from the grave, if, if what Paul is saying about our eternal destiny is true, that in, in the end we have two possible destinies to choose from, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news, for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus and put our faith in him, this is as bad as it will ever be. What you experience right now, this is as bad as it will ever be. The suffering that you endure, the, the, the terrible circumstances that you endure, the suffering in all areas of your life, this is as bad as it will ever be because when Jesus comes back, he's going to make all things new and he's going to make all things right. And we're going to be able to experience the love and forgiveness of our Father in the most deepest and richest ways. So the good news is if you are a Christian, this is as bad as it will ever be. The bad news if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've never experienced the, the forgiveness of the Father, the bad news is, is this is as good as it ever is going to get. This is as good as it ever is going to get. As you walk down that path, away from God, away from his forgiveness, away from the joy and the grace and the mercy of God, you'll be walking into an eternal destiny of despair away from him forever. And this is as good as it will ever get. But here's the thing. What Paul does for us is he talks about our bondage. He talks about our destiny. But then he talks about our hope. 
the final point he gives us tonight is that we're not left without hope. When Jesus resurrects from the grave, he gives us something to believe in. Look here at these final verses with me, starting in verse 23. We're going to read 23 again. It says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We've been given a promise. We've been given a promise that Jesus is coming back. He is coming back, and he's coming back to make all things new, to make all things right, to establish his kingdom here on earth, a kingdom where we're able to revel as children in the joy of our Father and an unconditional love. And what that means for us is that right now what we have, this is only a foretaste of what is to come. This is a glimpse. What we have right now before us in this world and in this life, this is a glimpse into what eternity is going to be like. Many of you, you love the outdoors, you love outside, you love God's creation, you think it's beautiful. Just imagine what that will be like without sin. Just imagine what that will be like without any type of restraint. Just imagine if what we know about the Rocky Mountains right now is only a shadow of their grandeur, imagine what will come one day. Imagine what a beach and an ocean and the sunset, as beautiful as those things are, imagine if those things are only a foretaste of what is to come one day. Imagine if your family, one day, without any type of distrust, without any type of conflict, without any of the the, the problems that your family face, imagine kids without conflict, without disappointment, without snotty noses and explosive diapers, Imagine that one day. Everything here on earth, that's what heaven is, everything here on earth will be free to be enjoyed without restraint, without bondage. You like to run? You can run all day without getting tired. You like to lift weights? You can do the heaviest snatch that you can imagine. You like to bike? You like to climb? You like to go to the mountains? You like to read? You like to think? You like to build stuff? Any of those things, you'll be able to do all the time, forever, freely, unrestrained, for the glory of God each and every day throughout eternity. You know what that means? It means we have hope, first of all. It means we have hope because this is amazing. This is amazing. We have hope because the best of days on earth is like the worst of days in heaven. The best of days on earth is like the worst of days in heaven. We will be able to continue in the presence of God with our family, brothers and sisters that love Jesus, that care for one another in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. We'll be able to to continue enjoying the things that we enjoy here on earth unrestrained without that bondage because Jesus has freed us from the bondage that we all incur. That's what Jesus has done for us. You realize that? That's what Jesus was all about. He came to this earth. He he went to a cross. He died a death that we deserve to die in our place for our sins. He was buried in the ground. Three days later, he rises from the grave. He gets up. He gets up, and and he has a body, and he's able to uh, embrace his family, and he's able to eat with his friends, and he's able to walk from town to town to town, all so that we could experience that for eternity in heaven with him. If that's the case, the resurrection truly does change everything. That's what that means for us tonight. 
The resurrection truly does change everything. It changed history. It changed the people around Jesus. And it's meant to continue changing and impacting every area of our lives, even today. And so as we wrap up a series, as we wrap up a series on the resurrection, as we wrap up this sermon even tonight, my encouragement, my challenge to you is to continue to just look at the resurrection. That was Jesus' proof to us. That was his demonstration for us to believe in him. And if we do, that, that same power that resurrected Jesus from that grave, that same power will be a hope that breaks into your life today and it will change every single thing about you. It changes your past. It changes your present. By the grace of God, we pray that it continues to change your future today, tomorrow, and throughout eternity. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks. We celebrate as a people here tonight the resurrection. We recognize that it was one of the greatest feats in all of human history. Lord, as you went to the cross and you died for us, you were buried, you rose again. Lord, we recognize in rising again, you conquered sin, you conquered Satan, you conquered death, and you gave us opportunity to have life and freedom in you. Lord, we pray that our church, we pray that our city, we pray that the communities around us, we pray that our friends would continue to experience this freedom, this freedom that you have offered us through the resurrection, through your gospel, through the good news that you have accomplished what we would never be able to accomplish on our own, the defeat of death. Lord, we pray that we would accept that, that we would revel in that as children of the King, that have all of the privileges and benefits of children of the King. Lord, remind us of that often. Help us to read everything through that lens. And Father, I pray that you would continue to change us into people who reflect the love of Jesus in radical ways. Lord, we love you. We give you thanks, and we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.